You're listening to The Agile CTO, a podcast geared toward technology professionals, disruptors, and thought leaders. This show will aim to cover industry trends, new technologies, the life of a CTO, building dev culture, stories from some of today's leading CTOs, and so much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to another episode of the Agile CTO podcast. Today, we had the great pleasure of introducing someone by the name of Greg van Berkel. Greg is the CEO of a company called The Code Collective, which is a software development house that's been around for 14 years. But not only is he the CEO there, he's also the head of software at another company that's also one of his clients. So he seems to do things in twos. He's also reading two books and very, very interesting guy. His, his, his take on technology, I'll let Guy speak a bit more about that, but his take on technology and companies is very similar to our own. Yeah, and as, as Holly mentioned, his stack is very aligned with us. What I found quite interesting about the discussion is, is how strategically aligned we are in terms of how we view building a company from the inside, not necessarily just how you present yourself to your clients, but how do you, how do you instill culture? How do you develop people? How do you grow people technically, right? And of course, we spoke about the passions around front end and back end and full stack and how these things have evolved over the years and where we think they're leading to. Interestingly, one of the very few other development houses that I know of that features Flutter on their product roadmap, right? So let's jump right in. Cool, and we are live. Greg von Berkel, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Guy, Harley, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your, on your show. No, of course. Thanks thanks for joining us. And, and Guy, obviously can't forget about you. How, how are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good, man. I'm looking forward to a bit of leave next week. I've decided uh, I'm going to take a little break and just kind of regroup with the kids. But we've, we've kind of had a long stretch of recordings now, so I'm looking forward to, to a bit of a break. Yeah, I think as much as we love doing these, they are... Uh... We try and be our best and it's tough to be on all the time and sound smart when we're really not smart. So that's why we bring on great guests like Greg. Speaking of Greg, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience? Tell them a little bit about yourself, the companies that companies, plural there, that you're, that you're working for and working at and, and what you're doing. Cool. Yeah, well, thanks again for having me. So I'm Greg and I am CEO at Code Collective. Although I do spend most of my time working as head of technology uh, development for our longest standing partner company. So for me, uh, being CEO at Code Collective means that I, I fit in wherever I'm needed to help everyone be successful. And somewhere in that, I also figure out who Code Collective is and, and how we want to contribute in the market. Right. And, and your, your biggest client at the moment that you're also the head of software for is Renati Group. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So they're, um, they're in the diesel industry. So they're a technology company in the diesel industry, disrupting, yeah, dis disrupting kind of the major oil players in the retail and the wholesale space through technology. So they don't own any diesel, they don't own any sites, but they provide technology into the market. Oh, brilliant. So that's, that's really interesting because looking at Code Collective, you guys position yourselves as technology partners primarily, right? So it's a, it's a technology partner right. mechanism. So I guess that's where Renati has sort of approached you to assist them as their head of software engineering, right? So, so Yeah, there's a story there. Yeah, let's hear that story. Yeah, I'm interested to hear that because it sounds like there may be a little conflict of interest going on there, but I'm interested to hear <laughs> your take on it. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, Code Collective as a company, you know, we're, I mean, we're offer a dev team and best practice product development approaches to 
tech entrepreneurs who don't yet want to build that capability in-house. But the story with Renati is uh, we started working with them in 2007, which in kind of technology company years is forever ago. And, you know, one of the things that that Code Collective sell, and it was just a sell like in an abstract kind of way up until we reached this point. But what we sell is that, it, you know, at some point it might make sense for you not to have an outsourced dev team anymore. And that's why we use the term partner. And yeah, so what happened was Renati did exceptionally well. You know, we started with them when there was the entrepreneur and one or two staff he had running around kind of trying to sign up diesel stations to 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 connect with with the product that they offer um, to today where they, you know, they're selling over 25 million liters of fuel. And somewhere in that journey, you know, Code Collective had to adapt. We increased the team size, but but somewhere in that journey, it, it reached a point where it really made sense for them to have a team in-house inside their company, salaried employees. And this is always what Code Collective has said, you know, at some point that's going to happen. So it was really interesting for me to transition that, to negotiate that transition. And yes, it did result in me uh, ending up working with them for quite a lot of my time, but the CEO and Code Collective concept continues. And there's there's all sorts of interesting things in there for me that, that kind of got to develop over the years. Okay. And you mentioned 2007, which, you know, in technological years is like the Jurassic era. And that's when you started <laughs> Code Collective. What's What brought that about, wanting to start your own company, your own kind of software development house? So I am a software engineer at heart. I think the the kind of figuring out how, how people actually work together to build great product and how these businessy things around making actual money out of this, these, these things came later for me. So in 2007, Code Collective came into existence because I was approached sort of out of the blue from the entrepreneur that that, that has now built Renati to create a technology company. He, he was adamant that he didn't want that in his business. And from that, uh, you know, actually birthed the DNA of, of the Code Collective we have today. And we, we actually haven't deviated much from the original principles and they, they are try and stay away from services like this belief that good software development happens in relationships and working closely together and and kind of focusing on value you know we talk about value driven decisions and building things based on value in software in various different ways but kind of bubbling it all the way up to the the kind of business arrangements that we put in place has been there's certainly lots of carnage over the years which we can talk about if you want a a story of failures trying to figure out how to put those those type of relationships together but we actually got it right with Renati luckily because um, as you know if you don't have an initial success it's you know your 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 existence is is short-lived sure sure I'm interested to to know a little bit about how you manage your time between the two entities, right? So, so Code Collective, I guess, was spawned out of that relationship with uh, the early stages of Renati Group, right? And most likely in those days, it was a very small team. Maybe, maybe talk a little bit about how that how that shaped up. Like, what was what was the dynamic like? What was the the structure like? Yeah. So, do you mean? back in 2007 like yeah um, yeah because your what other question was, was sort of around how i managed my time 
today. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I sort of pulled myself down to two different routes there. So let's start with the first one. So so what did it look like in those early days? Was it just you with with Renati Group or was it you and a small team? Yeah. You know, so in 2007, Code Collective and that brand didn't actually exist then. Um, the company did. And Renati's journey were completely intertwined and almost one and the same thing. And it was just me. So I I was the only salaried employee in the company. When Renati went out uh, to get capital to fund the business, we went out together, you know, capital for the technology company, capital for Renati. And yeah, I mean, there's so many stages in in that journey because over the first few years, Renati were really just testing their idea out there. And there was traction, I think, in about year two. And then suddenly, you know, like all of the things that we now try and sell as Code Collective to our partners as they grow in terms of like helping them with scale and dealing with resilience, you know, having one guy who knows all your tech and now suddenly you're making money. It's like, ah, risk. You know, those were things that we figured out kind of in real time as as Renati's success kicked off. So, you know, year two, we hired another engineer. Year three, we, we figured out there's this like process that people build software using which is a, a weird thing to say, given I have a degree in information systems and computer science, and the one of those is supposed to teach you that stuff, but it really only hits home like when it needs to, which I think is also natural in a way. So, you know, year three was maybe introducing software processes, and year four was realizing that running this in a data center that eventually had a fire and they lost you know half the servers was not a good idea and and we figured out things like disaster recovery and then uh, later on in that journey you know their integrations with kind of banks and big partners and they ask you questions about compliance and you know do you have these things in place and you know so we learned a lot about what it takes to create a good product, technology, product development team over a large number of years. And that's, I'm hugely grateful for that. A huge luxury that I've had in my, in my journey so far. So Greg, just to go back to what Guy was mentioning earlier, because I was going to ask the exact same question. What does your average working day look like now? How are you dividing your time between the two companies that you're working at? That is a very difficult question, Harley, but thanks. Thanks for asking it. I might start by answering it by saying I don't feel like my world is overwhelming and that I, you know, I have too many balls to hold all at once. And I think, you know, there's one way that I'm kind of avoiding answering the question by saying some of the things that have happened to make it manageable in that, you know, as more and more things hit you, you, there is this kind of realization that it's forced upon you. You can't do all the roles and it's one of those nice benefits of starting as one person and the question i guess is that i would ask myself is how well have i managed to keep the things that i think are a good match for me and how i can contribute well and my capabilities and how much stuff do i still do that i absolutely wish i could just hand over to someone else but i think what's happened to kind of answer what my day looks like is i I started with kind of with my product manager hat on uh, at 8.30 in a kind of open door session with the Renati business. And that me- that's a meeting where anyone can come and chat to me about anything that's on their minds in the business. And I find that very useful. Perhaps doing it in the morning 
is not necessarily the best choice because then you get hit with all these things. But then 9 a.m. I I start to I found that I for better or for worse that I've I enjoy taking on a scrum master role in the teams that I'm not actively participating, allowing me to have some visibility on what's going on. It's like it's not just the sort of reporting from the the lead developer or the product manager on that product. Uh, there's also a little bit of like what it's like in the trenches on that team. So there's like a series of stand-ups, including, including the, the product where I am actually product manager that, that happen in the morning. And then I have a, a knowledge share and impediments removal session with my team, which is also kind of, it's like the open door, but facing the other way um, where the team can kind of come with uh, things that they're struggling with, or maybe we, caused 40 minutes of downtime yesterday not a, not a true story true story um, and we wanted to talk through what happened and how we can you know not do that again so we talk about that sort of stuff in there and that's kind of like boom 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 the morning that gets me to 9 nine thirty, and then each day kind of opens up and I I have different themes so sort of Wednesday thank you for doing this on Wednesday is kind of my more like uh, lateral nothing fits into a box kind of stuff my favorite day and then you know other days are design sessions with a kind of product manager hat on and then other days i'm i'm coding like i actually can't imagine a world where i'm not not actually part of the engineering team as well um so it's a whole mix i don't know <laughs> it's a weird answer there you go that's me no it's 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 not a weird answer at all i, I mean i can relate to that as well right so it, it's 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 really great to to get in and and be writing code and feeling like you're still exercising that 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 instinct and that muscle right it's it's great so you your website says you work with entrepreneurs mainly right so the way i read that and correct me if i'm wrong here is that i read that as startups young companies that have got great ideas will come to code collective to to kind of help them to get that over the line is that a fair um assessment and if it is do you guys work with larger entities sort of like enterprises and if not why not cool question i the sort of startup phase where ideas are still being tested there's no sense that income can come through the door yet but there's a lot of hope and i love that kind of entrepreneurial energy i don't have it myself i'm a kind of more supportive uh, role uh, always in this i love that but what we've also found is that we're actually i think because of renati and guidepost and some of our our products that have now long since passed that you end up spending a lot of time dealing with scale things and and even like later on where you're just extracting value and you need to kind of create some efficiencies in the team we've actually found that our strengths are are in those second two you know so and that the startup thing like if you need to build an mvp i don't think we're the right team like we're really good at devops dealing with scale you know relatively complex architectures so often the conversation i have i have with an entrepreneur who's got an idea is i'm either talking them out of spending any money at all on coding and hacking something together in in some sort of way to test their ideas cheaply or i'm i'm passing them on to a collection of uh, companies in my network who are really good at mvps who can who can get you a product out in the market in no time at all and then our positioning is to catch them kind of as the money starts coming in and there's suddenly pain and suffering because 
the product that they should have thrown away is no longer serving them well and and they need something a bit more complex and that's where we come in and it it comes from my what i really love about software development is creating that team a permanent team and and watching them and myself kind of get immersed in the complexity of a product and the relationships with all the people involved that make it a success and you know that's not the mvp kind of game it's 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 the longer term game and i think that's that's where we sit uh, even though perhaps our website isn't quite stating that as it should and that's not not by mistake, because I, I want those conversations because that's a great sales channel. Those conversations with entrepreneurs in the beginning are are critical for us, I think. And I love them anyway. I, I love that answer, Greg. That's a, that's a really good answer to maybe a more complex question. I want to take it back to, I mean, you're on the Agile CTO podcast after all. And I apologize, you are, you are a CEO, not a CTO. But like you said, you wear many, many hats across the companies. Uh, you said in year three, you started thinking about and implementing, you know, uh, an approach to software de- delivery and stuff like that. What was that? Was that agile? Have you have you changed your opinions over the years? What kind of journey have you had in that area? Cool. A way of work question. I mean, year three is, is an embarrassing story, um, but it, perhaps it's worth telling. Oof. <laughs> so what do software engineers do? to solve a problem they, they build it all themselves they don't do any research and uh, you know they just solve the problem that's what we do and, that, and that's what we did so we built our own issue tracking system from the ground up and we kind of on a very ad hoc basis figured out how to solve this problem you know that copying and pasting files into production straight from someone's dev computer wasn't cutting it and and slowly but surely, we, we stumbled upon the fact that actually people out there have solved these things. And, um, and then we brought in the experts. Like, that's something, if there's something that I've learned that has helped me over the years, is knowing when to bring in an expert. Somebody who can help you accelerate some kind of improvement in your world. I think that's what you guys do. It's like that line that pops up right away on your website I, I thought i thought actually maybe we could have a conversation about that but but i mean then so we brought in a, a company called in reality who focus on kind of way of work improvements but also deeply technical practice side of that as well like because something i really believe in terms of an agile process is it's it can't just be like how you shuffle people around and get them to collaborate and work well together yes that's great but that actually needs to reflect in the code and how the code is written and how the code is supported and it also needs to reflect in theory in the business and how the product is designed and rolled out so like a good agile stack is is quite broad and that's why we chose we chose a coach company that uh, that really tackle we the product side i'm only i'm only just realizing i don't know nearly enough about uh, even though i think i said already that it's my primary role that i spend most of my time doing but on the technical side this idea that you know working as a team is valuable and like how to get good pairing and mobbing going what tools do you need uh, what tools do you need to refactor your code so that you can kind of try things and and evolve things a lot quicker than you could if it were a physical thing and yeah we learned these things I guess, over that period. And I think that answer sort of jumped around a bit, but I'll stop. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah, you know, I think what we've found as a business regarding the agile space is there is a lot of opinions and and sort of differing views on how or, or what what value agile brings to different strata in a business, right? And I think a lot of our time on projects is 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 spent coaching and and sort of upskilling our clients and and getting more familiar ourselves in doing that with this concept of agile, right? And for, for disregarding sort of whatever methodology you use at the metal when you're actually building software, the concept is is largely something that needs repetition, right? We find a lot of our clients need to be reminded, like, okay, you're not. You're not doing agile for this reason. You're doing agile so that you can measure how fast you're moving and make decisions based on data and kind of gaining, gathering that data in some way, regardless of what methodology you're using to do that. So, yeah, I, I resonate with that. And just, yeah, open cards for all of our listeners. So so Code Collective rhymes so much with Hayfully Software based on what we've discussed so far, right? Your journey rhymes a lot with Alan Hayfully, RMD at Hayfully Software, his journey when he started, right? So similar kind of road where there was one big client that he initially was running as a single um, single developer on that project and built this company supported by that initial engagement with their client. So it's, it's really interesting. So and I'll take you back to the intro call we had, Greg, probably more than a month ago now. I think it was probably more than two months ago now is something you mentioned to me on that call, which sort of resonated with me is that when I mentioned to you that our two companies were very much aligned in, in some of the offerings that we, we do, you know, in, in, all, in all fairness, we could call ourselves competitors. You said to me, you don't look at it that way. And you look at it as an opportunity for us to learn from each other. The pie is big enough for us both to be sitting at the table and growing independently, right? Maybe leveraging each other's learnings. So that led me down a rabbit hole and I came across this term co-opetition. I don't know if you've heard of this, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. And I'm just interested to hear your take on this and, and how you view competition in general. <laughs> I haven't, but I like it. And maybe this isn't true, but I have felt that this is true that, you know, in the technology product development space, we we're hugely lucky to be in an industry that that needs more good technology product development people. So I think having a community and being part of a community um, of people that do the same thing as you that might even compete for the same customers that you're competing for is just so much more beneficial because there's lots of work out there. Like I think there's enough work out there for all of us, but where our risks lie, I think even greater than losing a customer to Hayfully is in being disconnected from how people are building technology today, because it moves so quickly. And, and, you know, just to tie it to the story I told about, you know, us, not even lifting our heads for a second to think that someone else had created a dev process. We've learned this the hard way, that if you don't connect with the community, you're probably missing out that opportunity to learn from them, to, to collaborate and to improve together. And I think, you know, bubbles, and I'd love it if we had a kind of technology development bubble in South Africa uh, to kind of tap into, and of course we do, but, you know, when you start to compare it to West Coast America, you sort of feel like, oh, well, maybe I, but I, but I mean, really, that's what it boils down to. It's just that, that, that opportunity to learn and improve together will be better for both of us anyway, yeah, in a market where, you know, building 
technology product that's actually val valuable that actually helps businesses succeed is such a rarity anyway that's I don't, that's a good answer but that's how i feel about it no that's a that's a great answer greg and you touched on something there that was gonna it directly leads into my next question of you mentioned how quickly software development changes and improves upon itself and as someone who's been in not you've been in the game for a lot longer but you've had your own company for 14 years and you've seen the massive changes that have been happening and you're still writing code, which I find quite interesting because, you know, a lot of the time CEOs or MDs end up outside the code spectrum. There's just too much for them to do. And you're managing your time super effectively and still finding time to write code. And like you said, you'd always be a part of the engineering team. So based on how much software has changed in the past, let's say 15 years, where do you see it continuing to grow and where do you see it ending up maybe 10, 15 years from now? That's a wild question. Harley, if I remember, I did check out your your LinkedIn. I saw something about front end there. Is that your is that your speciality? Yes. So I'm the, the front end practice lead. So I'm on top of the, the JavaScript frameworks and Flutter and all the, the, the fun stuff as I put it. Hey no. We also do fun stuff here on the back end. So I think yeah, I, I mentioned that because the front end and how we present our product to our users and I have found and I've been through a large number of kind of front end frameworks over the years that the improvements in that space have really helped get the technology out the way. There's a lot more that could still be done, but things like Flutter, and, and Flutter's been my kind of deep dive for the last two years, and I still feel like I'm only just getting it, but it feels like with technologies like that on the front end arriving, it really gives, like especially entrepreneurial kind of people who are, are on a limited budget, the opportunity to build kind of world-class front end experiences. And you know, compared to the products we built in 2007, you can use you know design systems that people have spent billions creating and build your front end on top of on top of those patterns, still make it your own. And you know, frameworks like like Flutter make it so easy for you to to kind of implement that and and do it so in a kind of quick way. So I, I think the front end maybe that's a journey that's now happened. But it feels like kind of front-end technology and and how how we interact with technology is going to change. And I think front-end, you know, it's gonna it's gonna branch out into how we speak to our technology and how we move around it and all sorts of other kind of interactive things, which I wish I knew more about, but but don't. Yeah, I uh, and then I think just to to put a mention in for uh, what happens when once you click that button. One of the things that I have really enjoyed from an engineering perspective is how kind of the infrastructure that deployed solutions run on is now an abstracted concept. Uh, you know, for a team of software developers to be able to code how the you know the metal that that runs the software um, and have that kind of be in our control uh, is is just hugely satisfying. So so I think and I guess. Five ten years in technology is—it's just not something I, I can comment on. I, I probably should have a view, but I—I I don't. Yeah, you know, you—you—you you, you touched on that infrastructure as code, having that control of those environments, those cloud environments. It is a game changer. It absolutely is. And 
I want to go back to your your comment around around front end. I think modern front end technologies, especially the React uh, React and Flutter of the of the world, it's it feels like cheating, right? It feels like it shouldn't be this good, right? Uh, to be in the front end, and I mean Harley and I, we've been back and forth on this. And my current view is, you know, front end is is as vast and as complicated as any back end technology has ever been, right? Absolutely. I mean, great front end is also about, you know, is the data sitting on the device ready for the user to interact with? You know, are you making a user wait for, you know, data to get to the server when they don't have to? And those are kind of easy questions to answer when you're looking at a product or you've got a product manager hat on, but to create kind of like patterns and like frameworks uh, that your developer team can use consistently to deliver those experiences is is not an easy thing. So I, you know, front end, a good front end engineer is just as much an engineer as, you know, someone hacking out the complex services in the back end. Yeah, don't, don't, don't speak too loudly, Ollie's, Ollie's getting... I knew I liked you, Greg. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's great that you mentioned that, Greg, because we've actually got, there are kind of two sides to the Agile CTO. So first there is the interview type of recording, which is exactly what this is, where we get kind of an esteemed guest and we try and poke around their brains and see what makes them work and what makes them tick. And then we have the the flip side of that, which is a round table, which is where it's just myself and Guy facilitating with a couple of other people that work as a part of Hayfilly Software and we discuss certain topics. And our upcoming one is front-end cool. versus back-end versus ah. full stack. Oh, I have a strong opinion on that. Yes, it, it's going to be it's going to be a great a great session. So definitely look out for that. But I'm interested to hear your opinion on the term of full stack as someone who has now mentioned backend, who's mentioned frontend and how much it's changed and how much it's, you know, revolutionized and that it is, there are, there are architectural approaches and stuff like that. And then infrastructure. So you definitely, you're speaking about all the things that are full stack. Do you believe in a full stack developer? Do you think we're too far to not specialize? Lovely question. Obviously they're trade-offs. You know, if you've got a, a front-end developer on your team and a data specialist and a reporting specialist and a kind of dude who can write complex functionality to make your services tick, a performance expert, you know, but then you ask yourself the question, how do all of those roles hold the same aligned view on a particular piece of functionality? And, and I think what happens, at least it's happened for me, and I believe this strongly, that it's actually better to get somebody who owns the full vertical slice of functionality that needs to be delivered, because then there's real ownership and responsibility for what's going out there. And that, I mean, that just accentuates why things like infrastructure as code and having, you know, front-end frameworks that are accessible to everyone, it makes full stack a, a real achievable goal and we build everything full stack so and and i think it it also has a lovely sort of angle from creating careers and career development paths for people because you get exposed to everything in full stack and you realize i think that the most important thing um, around software is this feeling that you've done something important that that's actually made a difference and if you're kind of doing like making the button pretty and you're making like the service calculate the interest rate properly, but you're not doing any of the other pieces in between, I think you're disconnected from the value. So full stack allows you to really own a feature. 
and you can then experience it yourself or you can watch users experience it. That said, I do think, so kind of my view on it is full stack, but where people still specialize or like move towards their passion or where their energy is or, you know, where their strengths are. And then you end up having kind of specialists in your company that a team can reach out to, to help them do something in a world-class way, even though, you know, they got help writing a really efficient stored procedure in SQL, but it's still their stored procedure. It's not the, the, the data specialist that came in to help them. Right, right. And, and you know, this is, this I think aligns well with, with our view or my view, right, which is stay full stack as long as you possibly can in your career. This is, the, this is a lot of the advice that I give uh, anybody who asks me for it. Stay full stack as long as you possibly can. When you get to a point in your career when you feel like, hey, I really love SQL Server or I really love web API C-sharp backends or I really love React then make that decision in your career but give all of it give all of it a solid crack right and make sure that you're well-rounded as a developer as far into your career as you possibly can because that versatility is going to be priceless to future employers yeah even if you've completely specialized in something and now your role is just advising other full full stack teams or helping them solve the more complex problems in your area of speciality, having that kind of deep understanding of all the things that go into making a feature a real thing, I think helps you do that job better, whatever the speciality is. Yeah, I think it's super important, like like you guys are mentioning there, to stay full stack as long as possible. But there is so much value in, say, a front-end specialist knowing how the back-end works and vice versa. It just makes you a better rounded developer. I want to keep things techy because I'm I'm really enjoying being able to speak about the stuff. And Greg, since you mentioned Flutter, like it's completely made my day. But so what my big interest is Flutter. And like yourself, I've been kind of going down that rabbit hole for for quite a while. But another interest of mine, uh, whenever I'm POCing something, is the the default uh, thing off the shelf for me is Firebase. Do you have any stake in the backend as a service game like Firebase or AWS Amplify or stuff like that, or is it still are you going a bit more uh, traditional, stabilized backends? I would love to answer yes to that question. And actually, can I, I'd love to almost pose the question back to you and ask how to decide. Because something like Firebase, it, it removes so much kind of like wiring up. So you can get up and running with something that's reliable. You get all those non-functional requirements out the box uh, and things just work. It's beautiful. But how, how do you know when to choose that for your backend? And then, of course, there'll probably be kind of function hooks and stuff there, perhaps to some more. But I don't understand those architectures so, and how you make those decisions. So maybe I'll put the question back to you and you can answer, answer it. Sure. So from my side, and again, Guy and myself have gone back and forth on this. And it, for us, it always depend on what the, the client needs and the amount of users and stuff like that. Because obviously with a backend as a service, there are scaling, pricing, you know, costs and stuff like that. For us, I think it's just, for, for me specifically, it was just, I'm wanting to POC something. I was intermediate in the backend area, but I wanted to make, you know, a full-fledged application. So it started out as I think with most devs, a, uh, I just want to mess around with this. And for me, it turned into a professional hobby, I think is the best way of putting the, the backend as a service. And, and like you said, it can 
it has everything you need from database to storage to authentication and cloud functions and all that type of stuff. I think the big thing for us is that, and like, like you mentioned, it's how quickly you can get that MVP out. And with something like Flutter and Firebase, both being, let's say, Google products, so they're inherently designed to kind of, you know, fit together like exactly fit together like puzzle pieces you can get an mvp like you mentioned that costs millions or billions but you can get it within a couple of weeks and i think that's where the value is for me as it stands is that if it's a smaller application or you need to mvp maybe an enterprise application to test a use case or a scenario i think you can't go wrong with that i don't think right now i would ever suggest using backend as a service instead of a more traditional backend, maybe for security aspects and scalability. Uh, Guy, please add on. I know you have some opinions about this as well. Yeah, yeah. Look, uh, uh, each the answer to the question about why would you choose one over the other, right? Sort of when to make that decision. It, it comes down to client factors, as Holly has said, but but the, I think the biggest benefit for, for backend as a service offerings, regardless of which one, let's take Firebase as an example, is that that time to market aspect that 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 short quick turnaround that you get from using these services is is in itself so appealing because typically if you're building a greenfields project you want to see some value right out the gate you want to be able to get those features rocking and rolling and released as quickly as possible right that by using a backend as a service you're obviously minimizing your development costs right and the effort to develop those services because you know, something that might have taken a custom backend developer, let's say two sprints to build, you're not doing in two days using backend as a service, right? You've got your auth out the box, you've got your data storage, your binary data storage, your your services, your um, your 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 supporting little, you know, app services around those things that are running in the back end are, are all there out of the box ready to go. But I think the trade-off though is you've got vendor lock-in. Firstly, so you're now, okay, you've chosen a path with a provider. Like, okay, now we're using AWS. That's our, we're stuck. And of course, flexibility and 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 scalability and all of those fine-grained optimizations that you can do with a custom backend, right? I do have a story around this. It's, uh, so when you mentioned Firebase, you know, I really do think kind of, and I know Firebase apparently scales amazingly. And, and, and I don't know how well it handles like, relatively complex data. A story of ours is, um, uh, you mentioned vendor lock-in, which made me think to say this. So we've got a lot of experience in Azure. The way we've kind of pieced together the, the infrastructure side of things there is is to use the building blocks that are there. So, you know, we're not gonna install a Redis cache server. We'll, we'll use the Redis cache server in Azure. If we need to store blob storage, we're gonna put blob storage into some kind of Azure blob storage service. And if we need to host a web application, we're not gonna spin up an OS that we have to maintain and run a web server on it. We're gonna spin up a web server service. And that's the route we've gone um, for a lot of our, our stuff with it. And then I just wanted to mention something on, on vendor lock-in. Um, is and this is a, a bit of a geeky thing, but you know when you're a software team, we've abstracted all of our implementations into those service-specific, you know, cloud service-specific implementations, um, and we force ourselves to run our software in a different configuration in one of our QA environments, so that we kind of know at all points the solution still runs 
um, in a non-vendor lock-in configuration. So if we want to move it. And it is one of those things. We found that the abstractions you need to put in place from a dev perspective are actually quite lightweight because there are only a finite number of those different services that you need. Yeah, it's that's smart, right? Uh, those abstractions are, are they're only going they're only going to help you in future if you ever needed to change out those vendors. And you mentioned you're 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 an Azure shop, right? And and um, why why Azure? Is that because you're 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 the guys that are building the software are well versed in that space, or, or was that um, uh, a more, or let's say uh, a more uh, a different decision? So if we take a step back, the sales pitch is always when we start building your product. And now, if you kind of remember, like we're often trying to catch someone who's who's got a an MVP that's earning money that's no longer really holding together. And I know that's all blasphemy the way I phrase that, but that's often how real life goes. You know, our sales pitches we will evaluate you know the technology that's out there and kind of piece together something that that is the most appropriate for what you're trying to achieve in reality what you say um, around like well what are we actually skilled in and what can we deliver well in where have we already invested and come up with some wonderful kind of uh, coding patterns you know where have we already solved all the devops issues that we need to solve you know those things do play a part but Often there, I'm driven by the, obviously the sales pitch, what the product that we need to build, but also from where developers are in their careers and what they're what they're looking for. So, you know, if someone comes and they have a, a massive interest in, I don't know why I've got infrastructure on my head because it's the least interesting, but like AWS versus Azure, and they wanna they wanna do it in AWS. And they want to learn about that so that they can be an expert in in choosing kind of cloud providers in the future. You know, I'd want to actively explore that because if I see that, try and apply some kind of strategy for the business to that and say, well, if we were an expert in Azure, but we also had some competency in AWS, would that make us stronger as a company? Uh, And I think the answer is yes, because it allows you to have those rich conversations later on. So I'd be very open from that develop if the, if the development team are pushing something what we might do is just again that's where those abstractions those vendor lock-in abstractions are important for me so if we did eventually say look actually our strength in azure in terms of how well we know that ecosystem is just too important and then that ability to move it over would be key for me and greg we've spoken about we did the the, the due diligence of speaking about you know your work at your companies and your approach to software development. And then we got to geek out quite a bit and chat about the technical side of things, which I loved. One question we like to to ask all of our, our guests is what is your thing? And Guy always puts this as you have two brain cells left after a very long day. What are you what are you thinking about with those brain cells? Think of it as what's what's your passion outside of your work? What's your your biggest hobby outside of your job? No, guy, that doesn't help. I, I'm I'm not a one-dimensional person. Um, you know, I think, but 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 but, you know, what is my thing? I I feel like my journey has has kind of been deeply technical, and then somewhere in my mid twenties, I think an ex-girlfriend kind of said, "You seem emotionally stunted, and you're not expressing yourself." well like what are you feeling and it's like oh gosh okay let's figure out and then that that went this down this journey of 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 realizing that i exist in a world with other people and you know 
to do amazing things, you need to bring people along. So for me, my thing is this sort of technology direction, which we've talked a lot about today, and this people psychological angle and kind of where those two worlds meet each other. And it meets each other in how to create great relationships with the entrepreneurs and the, the businesses that we work with. And it meets each other in putting teams of devs together that feel like they're doing great work, that gel, that are attuned. And and that's it. I think that's my thing. It's tech stuff and this people thing and where they intersect. Great, great. And it sounds so obviously culture is a is a massive thing for you. Uh, do you guys actively cultivate a collaborative culture in, in inside of your business to kind of make sure that those inter-team relationships are built uh, uh, with intent or is it something that you see just naturally like through through your hiring process being lucky in that way or, or how do you how do you see this and it is something that that we focus on i think something i believe around building good product is you need a team so you're not building something in isolation i mean it's got tremendous risks and whatever but you're also missing the opportunity to have perspectives and different capabilities contributing. And so this idea that you need a team, it's then asking the question is, how would you like that team to behave together? How would you like them to interact? And how would people in that team feel fulfilled and like they're doing something that matters and that's developing themselves? And and I, and I think all of those questions need need to be thought about quite deeply. And, and of course, they evolve. So you, you figure them out in, um, so we have a lot of processes for these things at different levels. Everyone's hooked up with a mentor that meets up once a month, you know, lots of pair and mobbing. We, we spend time with the business and the features that we've built. And it's not me, the product manager, it's the dev that put it together, who will sit with someone in the business going through it and troubleshooting it and hearing but you built the wrong thing, you know, it's nice, you know, there's like all of those relationships and, and how it all works together is important. But then we also have sort of between teams and how teams can share together. So we have got this concept of doing micro talks. So like all of the relatively senior people need to need to present something in 10 or 15 minutes every now and then to the company. So it's something that can just fit in in between. We actually have a company-wide retrospective, which I think breaks all sorts of rules, but it allows people to talk about the fact that we've got the wrong coffee capsules for the coffee machine in the office, or the fact that we actually absolutely failed to get everyone second screens and comfortable chairs when we all had to start working from home or whatever it is. So it's kind of meeting meeting people in the kind of their, their, their work context, which is the team that they need to deliver in. It's meeting people in the greater context of realizing like, oh, I have a front end issue. I need to chat to Harley, you know, so they understand that these, these skills are out there and, and are accessible and, and teaching people how to access them at the right time. And, and then the connection into our, our partners is, is key so that there's this feeling that the dev team is actually just an extension of your business. Wow, you know, you, you, you could have been describing our business there, right? With those things that you're talking about, those internal company retrospectives, those, uh, we call them uh, workshops awesome. and tech talks that you that you mentioned is uh, 15 or 20 minutes where the guys internally, the more senior guys go and go and show something, right? So we've we've been down this journey along with you independently. So it's really interesting to see 
or at least here for me, that other companies are on the same track and we're not too far off the mark, which is great. Yeah, it's great. What you're saying to me is nice in the same way, some validation. So thanks for that. Yeah. So Greg, we're getting to the last little bit of our time here. And it's been a really amazing and technical talk, which I've really enjoyed. But we have the, this quick fire round where we ask our guests the same five questions. And um, yeah, it's really just to keep you on your toes, try not to think about it too much, whatever first pops into your head. So I'll start us off and then we'll, we'll go through all of them from there. Okay, you, you ready? Uh, let's do it. I'll take that as a yes. Cool. The first question, what is your latest must read or watch or listen and why? Obviously, you know, some people don't listen to podcasts or don't read books. What's of those strikes for you and why should people read, watch or listen that? Okay, well, I'm reading two books at the moment. One called Inspired how to build tech products customers love by marty kagan i'm reading that book because i think we talked about it earlier the engineering side of things is a thumbs up for me the product management and i mean a question i'd rather ask questions in a quick fire round but like you know how often have you guys released seemingly great functionality that just didn't land this has happened to me way too often so that's why Marty Kagan's Inspired is currently on my reading list um, to try and figure out how to do that better. Then I'm reading uh, a book called Debt, and my brain has gone dead. Who's the, the author of Debt? But uh, it comes from you know trying to fully understand what this money thing is all about, where it came from, how us humans came up with this abstract concept. And, um, and I, I find that just interesting from a kind of seeing how humans deal with abstractions and this money thing rules our lives so yeah is that is that the one called uh, debt the first five thousand years that's by it. a guy called david, david Graeber. Graeber. yes there we yeah. go thank you cool cool thanks for that the next question who's your favorite ninja turtle i have no clue thanks guy <laughs> cool cool actually the next question is who's your most professionally influential person in your life right now and why professionally influential there's a guy called, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Remy Rousselet. He's built a bunch of application pattern development pattern things for Flutter. And he literally saved my life in terms of figuring out how to create patterns for devs to work at scale in Flutter. Um, so, yeah, that's what popped into my head. Oh, great. Okay, so I'm interested to get a link to any of his content. I'm going to append to that. So we uh, use the Stacked Architecture, which is by a company called Filled Stacks, which is a local South African company. There's a guy called Dane Mackier. Cape Town guy, yeah. Yeah, very, very good approach. We also were literally just, you know, floating away in the wind trying to find the right architectural approach because it was so new and still is so new. So, you know, this might not be the last, but the block pattern didn't uh, appeal to us. So we went with a more MVVM approach. Anyway, we're in quick fire. To answer Guy's question, Leonardo, it has to be Leonardo. If anyone... Now I know. If you, someone likes Raphael more, like, we can't be friends. <laughs> it must be Leonardo. I'd accept Michelangelo as well, so, in some cases. Yeah, but that's more of a surfer, bro. <laughs> the cool kids pick yeah. Leonardo. Greg, an opinion that others have about you that you find frustrating? I think people sometimes think I have a plan... I find, I find that frustrating in, in that I, I actually think my super strength is figuring the crap out as it hits me. <laughs> That's the best answer to any Brilliant. question we've ever had. 
Excellent. Okay, so we've all got we've all got opinions, right? So what's your most controversial opinion? <laughs> oh gosh, you guys are going to edit this out. I'm South African as well. My most controversial opinion: don't lock your car or your house most of the time. Interesting. It's not going to change your chances of being a victim of crime. Yeah, I suppose if they want to get in, they'll get in, right? That's sort of sort of hard. Yeah. Goes. The, the, the interventions we put are more for our own sense of safety than anything else. Okay, and on that note okay. of Greg just, you know, breaking my mind and instantly making me feel a little bit unsafe, oh, our yeah. final question, Greg, is what are you currently procrastinating over? Oh, yeah, that's easy. Um, Marty Kagan's inspired. I feel like this product management thing, I actually have much less of a foundation for it, so it feels like I'm building this up from the ground up, and that's definitely requires a substantial amount of procrastination. Brilliant. Greg, that brings us to the end of our session. Thanks for making the time to be here with us today. It's been great chatting with you. Yeah. Thanks so much. It's It's been fun. I hope you get something out of all of this. And and Greg, where can our audience find you online if they're wanting to find out more about yourself or more about Code Collective? So I'm an, a very a very occasional tweeter. You can get me on Greg Van Berkel. That's me. And uh, Code Collective at codecollective.com. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Greg. Well, that brings us to the end of our, our recording today. So thanks for making the time. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, Guy. Th thanks, Greg. It was, it was great. We would love to have you back. Maybe we can get a bit more into the flutter side of things and the more the more technical stuff after we've had our, our internal chat. We can rope you in with the results and the outcome of that and get your opinion on it. That would be fun. I'd really cool. enjoy that. Thanks, Holly. Thanks, everybody. At Hayfully Software, we build dev teams that deliver and fix those that don't. Dev teams fail to deliver all the time for countless reasons, from lack of skills to barriers and culture, from politics to process, from silos to egos. Whatever the reason, it's time they deliver. This is why we exist. From enterprise to startups, we craft high-performance dev teams focused on end-to-end -end delivery. Visit Hayfully Software at OutsourceHS.com to learn more. You've been listening to The Agile CTO. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.